Hello and welcome. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have a great show. In just a moment, Thomasine Dolan Dow will be with us and share her story and tell us all about what she is up to. She is a fashion designer and a sustainability advisor. In just a moment, Thomasine will be with us. I'm Carol Murphy, your host. And Daniel Hogan is in the studio. This is Heartstock. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw the This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and today our guest is Thomasine Dolan Dow, and she's a sustainability advisor and a fashion designer. Hi, Thomasine. Hi, Carol. Good morning. Oh, good morning. Thank you so much for being on Heartstock. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. Where are you speaking with us from? Um, I'm in New York City. I'm specific, more specifically, I'm in Soho, which is downtown Manhattan. Mm, that's a great spot to be. It's How pretty are, good. It's pretty lively. <laughs> yes, yes. So, you know, we all saw the difficulties <laughs> that New York has had. What's it like there now? Has the Delta variant raised its head in New York City? Oh, yeah, big time. Um, yeah, the, I mean, one of the Actually, a lot of good things came out of the craziness of the last year and a half. Well, there I mean there's some bad things too, but I'll focus on the good things. <laughs> the, uh, Thank I, you. The, in, or, in order for businesses to stay alive, they had to become more external, right? They, you know, specifically restaurants uh, needing to open up their doors and put tables out on the sidewalk in the street. So for that reason, we in some ways it feels very European, like in in parts of Europe. Outdoor cafes are year-round. Um, they're kind of, it's not just during summertime or during warm weather. So it's, in that ways, it's really, really nice. Like there's all this outdoor dining. And so strolling around the city, I mean, New York has always been a walking city, but now it's even more of an eyeful. And it's in, in many ways, it feels kind of celebratory all the time because people are out dining and socializing and sharing. That being said, for the most part, it's done rather safely. Um, in terms of it, it is outdoors. Um, and if you go indoors, everyone's wearing masks and precautions are taken and, you know, and the wait staff is always wearing masks. So that's been really nice. Um, so it, it's got people, it's gotten people out. And I think it's a good way for people to just feel, you know, because every, so many of us have been isolated, you know, not being able to travel or not being able to go to offices where they, you know, you know, they, they work with other people and yeah. big buildings and stuff like that. So that's kind of been great. And then my neighborhood has just been chock full because there are a lot of restaurants down here. And it's also because um, during the beginning of the shutdown, things were a little bit shaky here. There was just a lot happening with social justice movements and um, marches and protests. And it was, it was, you know, shortly after George Floyd. And so there was this, this, uh, perfect storm, maybe not the right phrase, but a lot was happening. So downtown Manhattan became a real focal point, probably because we're not too far away from City Hall and the um, the courthouses. And so the, naturally a lot of protests will emanate down there. And, and I'm just like six blocks north of that. So 
it was pretty interesting. But after after a lot of the dust settled on all that, it's become this place of just people coming together again. Um, and also we're located like there's like tons of subway stops near us. So it's just become this destination place for people to be and hang out. And it's it's more um, diverse than ever for those reasons. Um, so in that way, it's been pretty great. Um, it will hopefully, you know, more and more people will open up their businesses again. But it's I'll tell you what has not lacked is like the traffic, the traffic, the auto traffic is horrible. It's just, it's worse than ever, actually, which is sort of surprising. But um, that's yeah. that. Yeah, I imagine that there's all kinds of reasons for that, too. But you haven't always been in New York. So I'm hoping we could kind of touch upon that. But can you give our listeners a little intro here as to what it is that you do as a sustainability advisor? Oh, well, it kind of, the sustainability part came as an offshoot of my my fashion career, which was at some point, maybe like five years ago, I just kind of wanted to put the brakes on. I was like, what am I doing? Why, and do, why am I still who do I want to work for? And because it just means putting more product out in the world, who's doing it? Who's putting product out in the world responsibly? Who's doing it in a way that I can feel okay about? And I looked around and there aren't that many brands based in New York who do that. Um, you know, of course, Eileen Fisher is one of them. And I started talking to those people and and uh, they're, they're a pretty tight knit group. Many people have been there for 20, 25 years. So the circle is is rarely punctured um, in terms of new people coming in. But I did, you know, I, I, you know, was in contact with and communication with them for a couple of years and lovely, lovely people. And they really live by what they do. They they are true blue in, you know, in their belief systems about um, resources and about sustainability. But anyway, so for me, sustainability came about kind of as atonement, quite honestly, <laughs> to, to put it in religious terms. I, I just know I'd been putting product into the world for so, so long. And I, and I, I never worked for a fast fashion brand, so I don't feel like I was responsible for a lot of that. But I was definitely deaf and dumb somewhat to the, the overproduction of that was going on in general. And just and, and devaluing parts of the supply chain um, to get to these lower prices so that you can lure more customers in. And again, even though I never worked for fast fashion, a lot of brands still do that. You know, they want to make big margins and don't, but they don't want to charge the customer a lot. So because the, if they can do dip, big production runs, all the prices come down. And anyway, it's just this domino effect of devaluing everything from the farmer to the weaver to the cutter and sewer. Uh, so, so looking at all that, I thought, who do I want to work for? And then I realized, I think I just need to like focus on sustainability and how can I help advise brands on becoming sustainable or if they are starting that sustainability journey, how can I help them? Because I'm so familiar with how design works and how design interacts with merchandising and how design interacts with production. I thought I could be of help and of use in, in trying to track that down. I mean, a big part of it is materials. It's knowing where to source the materials that have transparency and that are sustainably made or grown or whatever. Uh, but it's also a mindset of getting everyone to think about how to operate because it's it's not just about the clothes. It's about how you operate in at your desk even. You know, there, it's just, it's everything. It's, it's like from how you get up and how you 
you know, operate at your desk. And when you go out to get lunch, are you bringing it back in a plastic container? So there's all sorts of things that, you know, we need to like look at in our lives that we've just not paid any attention to for a long, long time. So anyway, so that was why I, I, I took, I guess, a couple of years um, to study sustainability on my own. So largely self-educated. I did classes online um, with the University of Michigan and with Central St. Martin's um, Fashion Sustainability School. And then just before, again, before the shutdown, you know, I went to seminars and town halls. And then with the shutdown, then I was doing, like lots of people, just doing um, Zoom town halls and Zoom seven or webinars and all that sort of thing. But there's a ton of reading on it and it's all out there. It's, it's, it's not hard to access um, what's happening and what's wrong and what needs to change. Was there an aha moment? So was there, what was it that kind of sparked all of this? What did you see? That, uh, well, I think it, it, the aha moment was, I think, partly based on where I live. As I said, it's Soho, and it's a big shopping destination. I mean, it used to be known for art galleries, but then, oh gosh, like 10, 15 years ago, like Chanel moved in you know, and put a store up, and then Prada moved in and put a big corner store. And then like, you know, more and more luxury brands came in and the galleries went away because they couldn't afford the rent anymore. So they moved to Chelsea. So it became more and more of a shopping destination. But then along with that came lower price brands too, you know, that really are fast fashion. Forever 21, H&M, Zara, Old Navy used to be here, which I don't really, cons- well, Old Navy's kind of fast fashion, but not not the same way H&M and Forever 21 and Zara are. And Forever 21 doesn't exist anymore. But all those brands and, and there, there are plenty more. Um, they are just churning out product. And so I would see in my neighborhood all these people carrying plastic shopping bags and all these just like big shopping bags. And it, the streets were clogged with people shopping. And then the windows were always like, you know, markdown sales. So everything was always on sale just constantly. And it just made me think like, oh my God, where's all this stuff going? Like everything's on sale. There's a ton of product. Um, it just felt so suffocating to me. And, uh, that, that was, that was pretty much it, I think. And I wanted to do something differently. And I looked to people who were doing it differently and how do I learn from them? And that specifically was like Eileen Fisher and, and then to some degree, to a large extent, Patagonia, who, who puts their practices in a little bit differently than Eileen Fisher, but you know, they, they do a little bit more offsetting with how they work because they do use a lot of synthetic fibers in their clothes, which, we know we're not good for the environment, but they do so much to offset that with their with their um, environmental work and protections that they do. Yes, and tell us just a little bit about what you did prior to being a fashion designer and an advisor. Prior to fashion, I th- I think well, you went to school in London, I believe. Oh. Well, that was no, that was actually much later on. That was my adult life after I'd already been in fashion for 20 years. Ah. Um, so I grew up in, in Maryland and I worked and went to school at the, the art school there. And then I moved to LA and was thinking I would go into advertising because I was studying graphic design. And actually, even though I'd always wanted to pursue fashion while growing up in, in Baltimore, there were no schools that offered fashion design classes or courses. And I just was... I was not hardy enough to move to New York City. <laughs> I just didn't know anybody. It was so scary to me. So I studied graphic design and then I moved to LA and I thought, oh, I'll get a job. And I did. And I worked in advertising and I worked for Ogilvy and Mather and, and another one that's now merged with some other, it used to be Benton and Bowles and now they've merged with probably three other people. 
but so that was that was what I was doing. But then I I just really wanted ultimately I wanted to move to New York. LA wasn't satisfying me anymore. I, I just wanted to be around some more. I don't want to say structure because it's kind of loosey goosey, like the lifestyle. This was like the eighties too. So just, you know, and, and things always change, but I think I was looking for a more uh, fast paced world. And so then I moved to New York with my friends and that was definitely it. And then it was really just at a party. I met someone who was a fashion designer and it all came flooding back to me. It was like, this is what I want to do. And I kind of, this is before cell phones and computers. And I, kind of stalked him using a landline, which was like, hi, <laughs> hey, this is Thomasine. Can I, can I like show you sketches? <laughs> and, uh, so he, shockingly, he took a chance on me and hired me as an assistant. He, but you know, he was smart enough to have an assistant who went to FIT or Parsons, I forget where she went. So she kind of knew what she was doing. And so that was really the beginning of working and in fashion. Who was it that hired you? Oh, um, well, it was, I, I'm sad to say he's, he's um, passed on. His name is Charles Nolan. And this was for Bill Blass. So uh, it was a really long time ago. It was in the 80s, um, the, the late 80s. And um, yeah, so he was, he was good. I think because his name is so similar to mine, maybe he felt sorry for me too. I don't know. <laughs> it was Nolan, Dolan, Irish thing. I don't know. But uh, he was very kind to uh, bring me in. And I, and I, that's, so that was like the beginning of my fashion education. So really I, I learned a lot on the job. Yeah. And then, and then ultimately Bill Blass, um, let go of all, but let go of Charles. He wasn't happy with it. And then, but, but that meant the whole design team had to go because we were a unit. So there I was like one year of a job that was barely even a year, not even a year of a job in fashion. And I was like, out, I was like, Oh my God, I'm in New York city. I don't have a job. I only have one year under my belt of being like barely an assistant, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. So then that was pretty scary, just like sketching and trying to figure out how do I do this. And, and then I just put together a bunch of sketches and, and I started cold calling, like literally like showing up at people's offices. <laughs> like, could I meet with someone? And, um, cause you could do that, but I don't know if you can still do that now. I don't know. I just would find out where places were located. I would find out the names of people who ran certain departments and I would just bring a portfolio and show up. And I literally did that for Liz Claiborne. I did that for Ralph Lauren and ultimately I got a job at Ralph Lauren. So that, I mean, I had to like show up for four different interviews that Ralph Lauren, like presumably to see what I was wearing each time. Um, (laughs) And then ultimately I got a job there. So that was pretty good. Tenacity. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, exactly. And and you know, it's like, no one told me I couldn't, right? Yeah. No one told me you can't do that. And no, it was no. also like a sink, a sink or swim situation. It's like, yeah. I got to, I have to pay rent and this is what I want to do. So, mm-hmm. so we're going to take our midway break here in just a moment. We will be back and speak some more with Thomasine. This is Hard Stock. Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Thanks so much for listening. Today we are speaking with Thomasine Dolan-Dow, and uh, she's a sustainability advisor. We were just talking about her beginnings as a, a designer. You know, there's so many questions. I think the first thing that I would really 
love to talk about that you mentioned earlier, consumers and their role in this sustainability adventure. Things are changing. Do you think that that consumers are kind of... hmm, Price is something that you <laughs> talked about before, you know, how luring that buy as, as much as you can because it's cheap, you know, or buy a whole shopping bag full because it's cheap. Where are we going with all of this? Are consumers ready for just how much sustainability is going to cost really? I'm I'm so glad you brought this up. It's because it's the hardest thing. Um, we retailers... And across all you know industries, not just fashion, but retailers have trained the customer to now wait for sales, to buy it cheaper. Everything is really bad. And and as you said, people are buying bulk, and we really need to be retrained. And it didn't used to be this way. And I don't want to sound like someone who's like it was better in the seventies or whatever, but I mean, I mean, one of your previous guests, whom I adore, Dana Thomas. She talks about in her book, Fashionopolis, you know, the buying habits of apparel for Americans in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, how it kind of stayed the same for a few decades. Like people would buy six items of clothes a year, that'd be per person. And now, now we're up to 60 items per year per person of clothes. So that's, that's a really clear signal that people are buying inexpensive things that they're not keeping for long because they're not investment pieces, right? They're disposable pieces that are good enough for this summer. It's good enough to get me through this fall or it's good enough to. So how to retrain the customer, that's going to be really hard. I And it's going to be hard for brands. Brands are going to be super resistant to raising their prices. And they'll have to raise their prices if they start making less of things. Otherwise, there's, you know, they do volume production runs right now because, you know, factories... If you tell a factory, I want to make 100,000 of these versus I want to make 2,000 of these, they're going to give you a much better price because it keeps their workers working and, you know, it's it's reliable income for everyone. But we have to like pull back on that because now we, we also realize that most brands have like inventories they don't know what to do with. So everyone's got to st- slow down a bit, make less of it, and we need to buy less of it. We We need to like buy only what we love. And again, once upon a time, not not to sound like I'm living in the past, but people did buy investment pieces. You know, you bought things and you handed it down to your siblings. You know, I have things from my mother that she, you know, had when she was a young woman. And it's hard for people to think that way, that they can only buy less instead of buying 50 things that each of those things cost under $30 you know, maybe you only buy 20 things this year, but each thing is going to cost like 50 to a hundred dollars. It's going to be really hard for people to respond that way, but we've all got enough clothes to last us for the rest of our lifetimes in our closets, with the exception of kids who are growing out of things all the time, the audience, the customer audience. Yeah. It's going to be really hard because as you said, sustainably made products are going to cost a little more. And I just don't think enough people care. I think there are, I think there's two different audiences. There's the customer audience that really does care and seeks it out. And there's the other audience who's really not even aware that it's a problem. And then within those two silos, there's a whole different, there's a whole, there's a big, big spectrum of who those people are. Because it's not just one kind of person who comes from a certain kind of income or certain kind of background. It, It really covers all bases. 
That's my opinion. And why is cheap so bad? That's a hard thing, I think, to convey to customers that this fast fashion habit, lots yeah. of cheap clothes, is a bad thing. Why? 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 Is yeah. It? There are several reasons. One is that it's it's devaluing the supply chain, which means the farmer, which means the the weaver, the sewers, the cutters, the knitters. You know, you have to wonder how much did they get paid if you're buying a sweater for twenty bucks, like. Didn't someone have to knit that? Even if it was like a machine knit, someone still has to like put the yarn in the machine and, you know, hands touch it. The other thing is, so, so those people, it, it, you would probably right, rightly think they're not being paid fairly. And then for the farmer, the farmers have all sorts of struggles because their their livelihood is dependent on the weather. And now the weather is just nuts. It's gone bananas, as we all know. And so it's not reliable. But also, I just think people don't think back to what's involved there. And farming practices that, you know, is another, it's another tricky industry where, you know, because of the pressure put on products that they produce, they've had to forego more sustainable practices because they, they've become industrialized. But anyway, um, getting back to why cheap is bad. The other, the other reason things are cheap, I should say, is that a lot of that fast fashion, disposable fashion is made from synthetics and synthetics, synthetic fibers are the cheapest fibers out there. And they come from the plastics, as, as you know, most of your listeners probably know, so, which then comes from, you know, fracking, oil industry, et cetera. So it's a petroleum product. And what we know about those sorts of fibers is that they will never go away. That's, they're with us forever. Um, we don't even know. Uh, how long they they last in the environment um, because it's still a slightly it's still a fairly modern fiber, meaning like you know since I guess the 1950s or something. So because it's because it's coming from that industry, they it's you know it's like it's waste product for the petroleum industry from what I understand. It's very very cheap, and it's durable, and people like that. It takes color well, you know, so it does lots of things that people are attracted to. For brands, it's, you know, they, they don't have to pay much for it and they can make big margins for the consumer. They don't have to pay much for it and they like the way it looks. Mm-hmm. So we have to, we have to wean ourselves off of synthetics. It's, it's just the worst. And, and that's a good segue to Material Innovation Initiative. Can you share with our listeners your work there? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking about that. Yeah. So it's a nonprofit group. And what we're doing, we're a small group of people. When I say small, it's like maybe 10 people with a lot of volunteers who are also a big part of it. But what we're trying to do is create an ecosystem of innovators and scientists and investors, and then myself being a fashion person. It's an ecosystem for sustainable materials. So the innovators are also entrepreneurs in many cases, and they're also working alongside scientists in many cases because in order to create these laboratory-grown materials or laboratory-made materials, you have a chemical engineer, you have textile engineers, scientists, chemists, and these people are working alongside entrepreneurs and innovators who want to make things sustainably. And so it's really interesting. So we're trying to help them with investors. We're trying to help pair them up with brands who want to either invest in it or want to be part of, you know, testing their materials and ultimately purchasing their materials. So most of the people are still in R&D phase. There are a few who have made national headlines and international headlines for especially like the alternative leather materials. Certain brands are using them. Um, and we see it popping up in the sneaker industry a lot. The sneaker industry is always really innovative. That's kind of how 
sneakers have worked since they've been invented back to like Goodyear, back when he like vulcanized rubber and then put it on the bottom of a shoe. So the sneaker world's always been innovative, but it's really interesting. So I get to see materials that are still in R&D phase and I can put it through testing, just like low tech testing. That would happen if you were to wear it as a shoe or a garment. Does it scratch? Does it wear? So it's not just leather materials. It's also um, hopefully solving for things that can replace synthetics. So not using petroleum products. And if we can solve for things like that, we can replace polyesters and acrylics and, you know, all like the, the fleece pullovers that we all love that are warm and cozy, like those are generally made of acrylics and synthetics. So if we can come up with fibers to replace that, that are sustainable, that mean, meaning they don't pollute while they're being made. And then while they're being worn and washed, they're not going to be harmful to the planet. Whether they biodegrade naturally over a shorter amount of time than, than acrylic synthetic fiber, you know, that's, that's the end goal. Something that won't last on the planet for a hundred years or, you know, a lot less. So it's really, really interesting. Uh, the, the leaps and bounds people are making. Um, there's an innovator, I mean, that worked with North Face to create a new laboratory made nylon. So it's not using synthetics. And so those sorts of breakthroughs are really, really exciting. And so many of us, myself included, for a long time, I just had no idea that as I was wearing this article of clothing and especially washing it, it was leaching pollutants into our waterways. It's heartbreaking and we're due for some, some change. So Um, We've maybe got about two minutes left. Maybe you could share the highlight of of innovations that are currently going on and how might listeners find you carry on the conversation? Oh, oh, great. Yeah, the highlight, well, the the innovations I talked about are, for me, it's finding the replacement to the synthetic industry. When you try to solve for fibers like silk and wool, which aren't the damaging ones necessarily, but polyester emulates silk and acrylic emulates wool. So when you try to recreate silk and wool in a sustainable laboratory setting, you'll take away the need for synthetic fibers. That's the most exciting thing for me because as you mentioned, the synthetics industry has has caused like the shedding, the microfibers, microplastics in every waterway, every ocean in the world. And it's on the the tallest peaks, as I'm sure you've read also in Tibet from mountain climbers and trekkers and and things like that. So I I don't have to worry about, you know, what all this does to biodiversity, of course, both in the marine life as well as on land. But, well, I don't have a website. I I am on LinkedIn. I can certainly message me on LinkedIn. So it's uh, Thomasine Dolan, Thomasine Dolan Dow. I have a Gmail. You're certainly welcome, thomasine.dolan at Gmail. If I can be of help to anybody or if you have any questions, absolutely reach out. Mm, Thank you for sharing your story and thank you for your work. Thank you, Carol. It was awesome talking to you. Mm -hmm. I appreciate it. This is Artstock and as usual, we shall be back next week. Peace. Hardstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. The voice will sound
Oh, 